You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon here with Christoph Jospe. We traveled for this podcast down the street. It was very convenient. I'm happy it's our first neighborhood leaving our office yet still in Ballard. Were you right on the limit? They have that horrible new word between Fremont and Ballard, Freelard. Are we like right on the boundary there? Uh, actually, we might be. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> this is still Ballard in my book. I'm really excited to do this podcast. You know, sometimes you talk with other entrepreneurs and you're like, that sounds cool as a concept, but do you actually do anything? And we're on the second floor of a building that in the first floor, there's a lot happening. They have drones, they have seeds that probably make sense because the company's called Drone Seed. We tried to keep it so simple. (laughs) (laughs) So simple. And we get to have two very distinguished guests on the podcast. Um, We have Matthew Agai, who is the director of R&D Biological Products. And we have Grant Canary, who's the CEO. And we'll save the juicy bait. I usually like to lay out a little bit of like, what's this podcast all about? Or why does it matter? I mean, obviously, photosynthesis removes carbon dioxide and talking about reversing climate change. So it's kind of like, duh, only a matter of time till we come up with scalable ways to do massive photosynthesis on an exponential scale. But Grant, how'd you get into all this? Very specifically wanted to make a dent in carbon emissions, had a bunch of bad ideas, went through lean startup method. I know they're bad ideas because like I put them in front of people and mocked them up, minimum viable product, created a, a thing to said like, hey, this is going to be awesome. What do you think? And then friends that I knew, loved and trusted were like, I would never buy that. Don't do that. Don't spend the five years of your life doing that. It's not worth it. <laughs> and so like I can give you a couple examples if that's useful. But basically like uh, one example was getting a gas station and putting a one cent on a liter or a gallon of gas to be able to fund reforestation in a carbon market. And uh, I put that in front of people and people looked at that and they were like, uh, and that was like, for a lot of people, that was like something that they were not focused on or wanting to do at that time. I think actually that like you're starting to see a lot more of a tipping point now because now we see that Shell, they have the ability to execute at scale with that. So they just announced 300 million for reforestation and in Europe, the ability to do just that. But for me as an entrepreneur, I started looking into the gas pumps. I started looking at how would I get a gas station? How would I do a minimum viable product on that? And uh, I just couldn't see how to fund that on a capex and i also was like getting pushback from people at the time saying like i'm not sure why i want this product so it was something that for me it was like it was not a good thing to dive into that's a very good way to go you should test things out and do it in a small way before you launch a career in it or try to you'd be surprised that this doesn't happen as often as it maybe should i've definitely seen ideas where i'm like you should workshop this a little bit or Uh before publicly announcing that this is your new life path it is validating to be like hey chef you stole my idea. <laughs> and also that, yeah. Well, but note also that Shell is doing this four years after I was looking at it. And Shell has, you know, control of I'm not sure how many agreements with gas stations, whereas I had zero. And so, like, you look at that and you're like, okay, these are the right people to do this. One of the questions as an entrepreneur you should ask yourself is like, am I in a position, you know, this is a great idea. It's obvious. Am I in a position to make this idea come to fruition? And, you know, entrepreneurs, we should all be very optimistic that the answer should kind of default towards yes, but you have to look very critically at it and then also like look at CapEx, look at other things. But to fast forward, 
forward, then what happens in this process is it becomes very painful because a lot of ideas are scrapped and the process sucks. And so you whine about it to your friends at places like Ruben's down the street or the Cozy Nut, which is uh, over in Greenwood, and uh, your friends give you crap for it. And they're like, uh, I guess you're going to be planting trees. That's not exactly what they said. They said it much more uh, sardonically to try and talk me out of trying to do something. And so then you start to look at it. And the reason that we're in the business we are is because trees have eons of R&D that nature already did. And they're really efficient at sequestering carbon and they're really cost effective. And we, you know, I'll respect your desire to bury the lead here. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, we could talk more about that. I think we should kick it over to you, Matthew. Uh, we Sometimes we've let this get away from us a little bit sure. and then 20 minutes in, we're like, oh yeah, you need to talk to <laughs> tell your story. So let's do it. Yeah. So, um, I started out in the Midwest. I was, a an urban kid, I grew up in inner city, Chicago. And, you know, I, uh, decided, after years of flipping through National Geographic magazines that I was going to work in, in the natural environment. So I went down to Purdue University, started in a wildlife degree program, and that rolled into this line of thinking, well, you can't really have wildlife without the habitat. So eventually, as I pursued this greater career, I started working in habitat restoration. I became a nurseryman, worked in a variety of efforts around the world, helping to you know find seed grow trees, uh, build the infrastructure to do that and be successful at uh, reforestation. If I'm being completely candid, I killed a lot of trees over the years trying to get trees to grow in a lot of interesting places. And uh, the lesson I learned is that we need to amp up the scale. And I would say about 80% through my PhD program here at the University of Washington, uh, I met these guys and I saw there was an opportunity to really put some throttle on that scaling concept. Uh, and this was like my one shot to work at doing this with technology. And I, I couldn't say no. The rest is history. So there's killing a tree and then there's killing a tree. What, what does that actually mean? Okay. So yeah, killing a tree in the name of science is one way to look at it. So, you know, you grow a seedling and then you see what thresholds it can handle in terms of drought, in terms of light intensity, in terms of a variety of other features to, to say what best environment can I plant it in? Another one is, okay, these people need trees. Let's go out and plant them. And then you just monitor and see where you're successful, where you're failing. And, uh, you know, you kind of chase that data and, and figure out where you can replicate. Cool. So, Grant, you're the CEO, so you probably get these questions from investors all the time. I'm not going to invest in your company. I think it's cool. If I had money, I would. Talk to me in a few years. But, all right, what do you do? What problems do you solve? How does it work? Yeah. So, so we went through Techstar Seattle. First thing they train you to do, for those listening, is like, tell people how you get paid. Like, tell investors how you get paid because like, they, you, like, you'd be shocked how much like that doesn't happen. We have a service model. So, we get paid per acre as a service to plant tree seeds, spray to protect them, and then monitor their growth. And we do all of that utilizing drone swarms. So that's one of the that's one of the things you work through. We're a couple of years out of TechStars now, but you just like how to summarize that and make that really succinct. The people that pay us are timber companies. So these are like the warehousers of the world, Boise Cascade, others that are out there, and then nonprofits. So the Nature Conservancy, and then government agencies. So Bureau of Land Management, which manages rangelands and forests. And then also the U.S. Forest Service, Department of Natural Resources, which funds a lot of Washington schools, et cetera. So these organizations, we work with three out of the five largest timber companies in the United States. 
We work for the Nature Conservancy, which is the world's largest land conservation group on the planet. They have a chapter in all 50 states and in nearly every country. And then as far as like the other things that we've had to do, and I think we'll probably head in this direction, is on regulatory. We have two precedent-setting waivers from the FAA. So the most recent of which is we got approved to be able to operate aircraft over 55 pounds in groups of five. So one swarm is a group of five aircraft, 115 pounds all up weight. And it can be managed by one pilot. So our crew is out there. It's a crew of four to five folks. There's one pilot that has five RC remotes that can, can take control of an aircraft at any time. But the aircraft, five aircraft are operating autonomously. They're pre-programmed, if you will. They're not relying on the future of autonomous vehicle sensors to like detect obstacles. What we do is we go out there, we do a survey with LiDAR and multispectral data, create a 3D terrain map. That map is then what we're utilizing to pre-program the drones to do 10 hours of flights in 10 to 20 minute chunks. How's it done now? How is this an advance? I guess many people probably aren't familiar with how forestry actually works. Mm -hmm. The best tools right now that we have for reforestation are people with shovels and bags on their hips. And I'm not saying Super that analog, like there's many yeah. founders who are, who are like, oh, the like existing solution is terrible. It's like, no, like it's a, an issue in the sense that like the people who do the work are absolute superheroes because they're basically mountaineering with about 40 to 50 pounds of one to two year old grown trees in bags on their hips. And the reason for that is terrain. Most of the flat ground out there has been converted into agriculture. So mm -hmm. high productive yield, we want to eat food. We got a lot of people who need food. All the stuff that's in the mountains, well, we need water too. That's where you know trees are incredibly helpful is creating watersheds for cities, for agriculture. So most of that is left as, as trees. Well, that means you have these incredible like 40 to 60 degree slopes that you're planting trees on. And so in order to replant after a cut or after a burn, um, you've got to get people out there. And if you put a tractor on a 60 degree grade on what may be like snow and mud and whatnot, like you've created a huge safety risk. So that's one of the problems that we're mm -hmm. focusing on. Yeah. The other element is all the, the biological side of that, the front end, you know, in order to get somebody to get out there and plant a seedling, you obviously need a seedling. So working backwards, that means you need a greenhouse. It means you need fertilizers, heating. A variety of materials, styrofoam or whatever other containers compose that seedling infrastructure. And then before that, you need somebody to go out and collect the seed. And, you know, you need to have a good seed year, which we haven't quite as biologists nailed down when we're going to have good seed years for any given species. So there's a little bit of a gamble there. So there's stockpiling, there's storage, you know, so there's this whole process, this whole supply chain that feeds into we need to control this and it takes time. So we're trying to shortcut that whole nursery side of things because instead of having, like, let's say a fire as an example, and I'm sure we'll head there, and then ordering a seedling and hoping within two to three years, having that seedling ready for planting, we essentially are able to respond by saying, we have the seed, let's get right out to site and get that genetic material into that surface uh, or onto that surface as soon as you had that disturbance. Yeah. I want to talk about the fires. You are correct in assuming that we did want to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is maybe a little bit outside of exactly what you do, because I don't think you work at this stage of it. But what's wrong with how the forests are managed now? Is there anything that could be changed that would improve it? Why are there fires? I just moved up here from L.A. like a yeah. year ago, and I was shocked by I thought Washington would escape this. And I saw it was also up in B.C. too. There's not a one size kind of uh, fits all in terms of understanding what the limitations are of our current you know, government's practices or our current any landowners practices uh, towards uh, mitigating fire risk. 
every region has its own issues. Um, but one way to, to classify it is you look at the last century and we did something called fire suppression pretty uniformly along most of the West Coast forest resources, really in most parts of the country where you had a forest because fire isn't good. Uh, not only the smoke and the air quality, but also, you know, burning up a resource that can be utilized in an age of timber primacy. You know, that was really something that people were trying to avoid. So we basically built up a lot of fuels. And now, in addition to some of the anthropogenic heating happening around us, uh, we're kind of at a flashpoint, if you will. Um, so, you know, the nuances of policy and things that go into that have to do with perhaps funding, perhaps objectives. When you're managing a forest for a single objective like timber, you're very focused. And as a result, you do everything you can to make sure there's always timber. That's one of the issues with the last century of, you know, forest management that led to where we are. You know, a way to look at that now is a lot of society starts to value other things. For instance, the spotted owl in the early 90s, uh, and therefore we are able to start drawing circles around spotted owl populations and therefore protecting old growth as it was, you know, waning. And now we're starting to think, okay, well, there are other resources that we can put values on in the forest and they don't require there to be these perfect large stands of, you know, fire prone trees. So we can start to thin them out and still get the watershed protection and still get, you know, the myriad ecosystem services from like various fruits to, let's say, uh, mushrooms to, let's say, wildlife or other things like air quality without necessarily putting ourselves in that risk type scenario. And I'll, I'll piggyback on that, too, and mm -hmm. say that, like, your question specifically is like, hey, what's causing all the fires? Mm -hmm. And you've got management practices and you've got climate change. Climate change makes things hotter. Things are drier. They're more likely to burn, more likely to burn faster. The management practices, if you're like, we want to make sure we don't throw timber companies under the bus, they do a lot of pre-commercial thinning, mm -hmm. which is where you thin out trees that are, is that small brush or undergrowth that costs money, but that's actually a really good forest management practice because that means those areas are less likely to burn because there's not that undergrowth or that fuel load that's at the bottom. And the U.S. Forest Service, we'd like them to have more money to do thinning of not like big trees or old growth, but to do thinning. And I have to be very careful because you have to picture like a row of like 40 trees and then make it like 40 deep or whatnot. You want to be able to thin out the like little stuff that's like 10 feet tall underneath these 40 foot tall trees because that 10 foot tall stuff is the stuff that burns and is the first part that that's creates. The kindling. That's the kindling. Right. Exactly. It's the bottom of the fire. You can't light a fire from the top. You have to light a fire from the bottom and that's the bottom. And so we'd love the Forest Service to have more money to do thinning because what Matthew's saying is like the management practices, we like, we, you know, you have a fire in your kitchen. What do you do? Put it out. You don't like, oh, we think we should, this fire is a good fire to get rid of all the grease on the stove, right? Like that's not been like the, <laughs> that's not been the useful thought practice. You're like, oh no, put it out. And so that's what the Forest Service has in the past been doing, but low severity fires are actually part of the ecosystem and they're natural and the trees have the ability to survive that. But now what's happening is that most fires are incredibly severe. In California, 60% of fires are moderate to high severity. So what's happening is you're actually seeing them get up way up into the crown. They're also torching the seed banks that are in the first couple layers of organic material. Matthew can talk much more deeply about this as a PhD candidate with 12 years of doing reforestation. So like, and by the way, around the world, so make sure you grill them on that and some of those projects. But if you're torching that, like that those like stored pine cones that are in the soil, all of a sudden you're not seeing natural regeneration either. So your forests are not naturally coming back. And we've previously been relying on that natural regen, which is biology class, like it burns. And then like nature knows what to do with it. There's an ecosystem, there's a seed, it grows. 
So we're not seeing that. So then what happens is nature hates a vacuum. Invasives move in. Invasives are more likely to burn. So then you see this like reinforcing feedback loop or a flywheel where it's self-perpetuating itself and you're seeing more and more fires. And the fires that we saw from 82 to 92, the 10-year rolling average was 2.6 million acres in the US. Now we're up to 7 million acres. And just for like comparison, that's a 10-year average, not a cherry pick number, just a 10-year average. For comparison, Warehouser, which is the biggest forestry company in the United States, on average, they reforest about a million acres a year to replace what they've cut. And so that's seven times what the largest timber company by a factor of five is reforesting every year. So when I say those people that are doing the reforestation are superheroes as individuals, recruiting that labor, utilizing seeds as opposed to seedlings grown in a nursery, which have all the HVAC supply chain costs, refrigerated supply chain to take it out to site, recruit the labor. We're trying to make it so people can do more with less, not replace those people, but instead of manually tilling fields, give them a tractor. And drones are that tractor for reforestation that hasn't existed in the terrain. And just some stats on that too. Like I will continue to flog these stats until they're just beaten to a pulp. But like the people who do reforestation with like the shovels, they burn the equivalent in caloric burn each day of tree planting of running two marathons. So like they can go eat whatever they want at the end of the day and they will lose weight. People do it as training for the Ironman. So like they are incredibly fit and it's something that people do for maybe one season and then they're like never again. And that includes also any other labor supply. It doesn't matter if it's in Thailand. It doesn't matter if it's in the US. People make a mental calculation. They're like, I can do this job for maybe one to two years and get a little bit more money per hour. Or I can do another job in agriculture or making electronics or something like that. And it's lower paying, but I can do it for 20, 40 years to support my family. Except for like the young bucks and a few like way outside the bell curve, like old timers, like they invariably choose the, the latter, which is do it for 20 to 40 years. I could see a lot of people preferring the Jack Kerouac Firewatch or Edward Abbey just cruising around the national parks in a beat-up pickup truck. It sounds a little bit easier. Yes. You did a very good CEO job there of bringing it all back to what you're doing. And so <laughs> you guys slide right in there because you're trying to reforest this burnt land, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. People will bring you on to do that. Yeah. And there's a very acute need for it too. Like we do an annual customer survey. If you're one of the largest timber companies in the United States and the fire is over 500 acres, you don't have seedlings that are grown for one to two years ready to, to drop in. So if you don't have that, then what happens is, well, you've got to figure out some way to keep the invasives out. That you, you got three options. You got spray, you got manual, like labor with machetes and backhoes, or you got matches. Those are your three solutions. And it's deferred maintenance and it's additional cost. Or you can work with us immediately and we'll drop that seed, that genetic material in there as soon as the fire cools. It burns in August, we'll be there in September. And so that's really one of the acute needs is I've had an emergency, I need a response. Otherwise, I'm going to have a hell of a lot of deferred maintenance. So... Part of my ignorance here, I mean, we're talking a little bit about management practices, and I just wanted to make a note of why fires are also happening. I mean, there are issues with the pine beetle mm -hmm. that sort of make trees even more prone to burning really quickly. And a big part of the pine beetle is because there's such a monoculture 
crop of a tree. And sometimes when you think about, oh, well, let's just scale quickly. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, are they planting the same trees? Are we going to see something like palm growth? Or do you want something sort of widely, highly diverse? But the timber companies, I would imagine, they sort of want some kind of consistency. And if they're contracting you to plant certain trees, mm-hmm. is there ever a tension where they're like, give us all this one species? But you're like, oh, you know what? We actually want this better biological mix because it's going to serve this area better. So can you talk a little bit about the seed variety and how you manage some of these tensions? Yeah, I mean, any good forestry student knows that it's all about landowner objectives. So first and foremost, um, you know, we're trying to meet the prescription that the landowner desires. And whether that's a very small mix of species or very wide mix of species can vary. Our objective is to always focus on native plants. So we do not intend to stray from that. That's a really important thing to put out there because we're not going to go out there and put out a mix of, you know, eucalypt here in the Northern Hemisphere. It's been done, but like, you know, those love to burn though, right? That's right. Blow up. That's right. So in terms of the mixture, you know, we encourage our customers to have dialogue with us and consider, you know, all the options. And a lot of that relies on what their seed banking strategy is. So if they have a variety of orchards, they will often put out um, seed mixtures out onto a landscape that has burned. You'd be surprised even some of the big TMOs and REITs, these big uh, forestry organizations are- Sorry, what's a TMO? Timber Investment Management Organization. And then- He, he warned you this would happen. I know. And then- and <laughs> We then also, I didn't get off to Grant. Yeah. He said FAA, and I wanted to start singing like, what is it? The Guster song? The fa, 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 fa. That's the, what is that again? The, the Federal yeah. Aviation Administration. There it is. Yeah. And so, so anyway, going back to seed mixes, we are- all about getting a variety of species out there because you know you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket and put a monoculture out there and have that high risk. Um, you want to reduce risk and increase options for future forest management. So to do that, you know, creating structural complexity in a forest and biological complexity in a forest are critical. We always have that in mind, but we do have to be careful because again, it's all about the landowner objectives. We are a contractor. Yeah, and I'll and I'll jump in there. Can we, if we can we just digress and nerd out a little bit on supply chain because mm-hmm. I think it's super important. There's a pragmatic element that I think is missing, especially like especially in cities, understanding and I'm self from that. So I identify in that group of people who are like, oh, so this is how the product gets from point A to point B. But like like in your supply chain of like how do you do reforestation? We all assume like, oh, we'll just go to a nursery and we'll buy a tree or we'll buy like some seeds or something like that. That that comes from a supply chain. Mm-hmm. So if you think about like we always want to be doing native species, as Matthew mentioned. Polyculture is part of like my background and everything I've ever done has been in sustainability. So Vestas Wind Energy, uh, US Green Building Council, etc. So it's like, and one of those aspects is polyculture and making sure that like there's enough kingdoms of nature and they're processing waste in the right ways, etc. All of these things. But there's this issue with, great, how do we get all like, if you want native seed from seed zones and you want a polyculture, and then you have to then have a nursery system that grows a number of seeds from seed zones in different nurseries, then goes out to site in a refrigerated supply chain. And then there's a, a worker population that then puts it into the ground. And then there's a monitoring group. There's a long like supply chain that are so much costs in grown trees. And one of the things that we can do, and I said, but so like, we are all about the polyculture and native species. And the best way to do that is utilizing seeds as opposed to seedlings, because you cut out that part of the the nursery that is, you know, if you have four species, you're most likely dealing with multiple nurseries who specialize in cultivation of different plants. And so if you're doing that, is then that right, s- nurserymen? 
Yeah, nurserymen or women. <laughs> uh, Just want to check. You know, uh, yes. a more uh, Nurs- less nursery folk, less <laughs> nomenclature. You know, grower. Ah, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. That so, was a totally necessary objection. Or, oh, no, that's totally fine. That's totally fine. So to jump back on that train, like if you are doing that, we can cut out parts of that supply chain. So we cut out the refrigerated supply chain where like you've grown a tree, you can't put it in a hot metal box to go out to the middle of nowhere. You have to have a refrigeration unit on that truck. That's expensive. The HVAC in the nursery, nursery is like 25 to 50% of the nursery operation costs are in HVAC because you have to keep the climate controlled and doing that in the like wherever you're doing that is like difficult and expensive it's energy and then you've also got to have multiple ones so those refrigerated trucks have to drive around to different nurseries to pick up different trees to do a polyculture now subtract all that out you just utilize seed we've simplified that supply chain you go a step further and you've saved carbon and you've saved carbon. Yes. Less HVAC. Uh, so that's great. Which is heating, ventilation, and air conditioning for those who didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it goes overboard, but yeah. Uh, no, no. Appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> so the other thing that I'll point out on supply chain is like, so like I quoted the stat, like 7 million acres is the 10-year average burn in the US now. That's an average though. So that means some years it's 10 million acres burn. And some years it's like five. And that is a 5 million acre swing. And that is a hell of a lot of trees if you were to just like have them on call. Yeah, right? They're, they're, like, yeah, they're gone growers, now. They don't often want to grow on spec. And I should defend nurseries a little bit along this line. Please, please. You know, they are an extremely efficient way of growing genetic material and preparing it for difficult conditions and doing it at scale. I'll use the federal nursery system as an example, though. There used to be 20. Now there are probably six. There hasn't been a lot of investment in modernizing and streamlining this supply chain. So we are essentially presenting the case that it is deficient in meeting all of society's needs. So we want to make sure we're adding a tool to the toolbox and this highly efficient tool. Mm-hmm. So in this, because this is important because you're mm-hmm. going from 20 nurseries to six. So like the reason for that is like if you have in one year, like, mm-hmm. oh, we grew all these trees because we expected 10 million acres to burn, right? Which would be like one part of the political spectrum's answer is like, well, just have the government take care of it. The whole public will just pay for it and we'll mm-hmm. plant all these trees and it'll be great. Well, the problem with that is then like, oh, okay, well, only 7 million acres burn. Well, now you're throwing away 3 million acres worth of trees. Because you can't just keep growing them because they get bigger. Mm-hmm. And then where are you going to like, then all of a sudden they start to choke each other out and kill each other. And like, that's an issue. Now, now you want to see a mad public throw away 3 million trees. <laughs> that's taxpayer dollars and their trees. People will be super pissed. On the other side is like, okay, well, we'll grow 5 million acres. Well, now you're 2 million acres short. That's a lot of land to be short trees on. Mm-hmm. So like we, what we see is seeds. Now, mm-hmm. what we need to get into is like is setting the proper expectations because the public also kind of assumes like, oh, we'll just go out there and plant trees and they're all grow 100%. Just like in my like backyard when I plant a 10-year-old tree, like every single one of them grows. And if not, and I get angry and go down the nursery and be like, why does this tree go? So like there's a numbers game we need to get into and I'll, I'll flip it over here. But you also had a question, sir. So. No, I, I, I love numbers. Just I did have a question around the success rate of seeds versus nursery trees. Do you have a quick back of the envelope for us? Yeah, back of the envelope. I'd say that here in the Pacific Northwest, 80% for seedlings coming out of a nursery, uh, 80% of them should survive on a normal year. That's the caveat. So that's the one to two year old tree, a seedling. Right. Okay, seedling. Yeah, yeah. Something with roots should survive in a forestry operation or some sort of restoration outfit. Seeds, it can vary. You know, we've felt comfortable with the metric that 16% of raw seed. Uh, may survive out on a site as a general average for like our part of Washington. There's never going to be like a one size fits all because each system is different, each ecosystem, each uh, particular site condition. 
so that's the number that we're working off is like 16%. It's like, okay, so we're enabling seed. We're taking it to the next level. So we should be operating somewhere above that 10% mark in terms of survival. And the higher we can get that, the better without that nursery input. Well, we need to explain, like we don't do just raw seeds. Mm-hmm. There's more to it. Yeah, so you got we, to see some of that. Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah, Matthew took us to the murder room. Not sure what that's all about. <laughs> Lots of plastic sheeting, very Dexter-like, but it, it uh, yeah. It's where we do puck production. Yeah, you want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. Basically, we look at it this way. We know that seedlings are very efficient. They have roots, but we're not planting things with roots because there's this whole supply chain that Grant talked about, and it's not an effective way of arming a drone with that genetic material. So instead of just being a raw seed outfit, which you know is not really a change in the state of the art, we want to enable seed and essentially give them any sort of strategic uh, enhancement, whether it's our software that leads to placement in the forest or on the facilitative side from a material standpoint, giving it some sort of platform to facilitate that already wonderful evolutionary potential to germinate, maximize that likelihood of germination growing a root down and surviving on a site. So that's what you saw. Uh, And to summarize it without getting into too much of the details, it's a fiber-based platform. And then in that fiber-based platform, we put in seed and a variety of amendments that do exactly that, that facilitate that evolutionary potential of whatever that species is to get out onto the site, break that dormancy and, and grow into a plant. Two ways a seed can die. Dry out, gets eaten. Those mm-hmm. are like the top two ways that it dies. Mm-hmm. We put in things that make sure that those two things have a lower probability. But again, I feel like the public has problem like with probability. Like it's we don't see a hundred percent success rate. We're mm-hmm. we're playing a numbers game. So what you do is you you go out there, you put a large number of pucks. We'll call it a thousand to two thousand pucks per acre, and then you rely on a survival rate that you've calculated out. Matthew gave the number sixteen percent. So then you see, you get to, there's a certain number of seeds per puck. So then one to two dry uh, seasons later or a summer later, then you get to the right number of trees per acre. So for, uh, Mm -hmm. and this is where landowner objectives come in. You're looking at 400 trees per acre or slightly less, depending upon your commercial operations. Or if you're other, if you're more focused on habitat, conservation, polyculture, and you're not in that timber space. Because I want to make sure the people don't come away with this. Like, well, they basically just work for timber companies. No, we work for the Nature Conservancy. We work for timber companies. We're working with government agencies. They'll have different landowner objectives. So 150 trees per acre would be great for habitat for animals, especially if it's multiple species, Mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. So that's something that seeds are more efficient at doing. And with the pucks. So if I were to to do my CEO job, as I've been uh, framed here, like if you were to sum it up, there's three things that the like the system that we've built with our team does. The first part is go out there, map it, utilize LIDAR, utilize multispectral data and identify where we want to put a seed puck or the payload. Right. And also avoid obstacles on the way. Don't crash into trees. That's not helpful for like <laughs> executing. Second thing is we want the actual like seed vessel itself, the puck. We want it to like not get eaten and we want it to not dry out. And then the third thing is we want to do all of this in a way that we like make money and is efficient. And most drone companies, the reason we operate with swarms is because it's the old adage of many hands make light work. And the reason we applied for over 55 pounds and got it with the Federal Aviation Administration is that that allows us to carry more payload, to have fewer reloads for the aircraft, meaning that they land 
the difference between like a 20 minute turnaround time and a five minute turnaround time on getting a drones up in the air, any aviation professional knows that your time on the ground is a time that you're not servicing your customer. You're not making money. You're just wasting time. And so we built this whole support system and charge structure behind that allows us to, we're actually operating a lot like a NASCAR pit crew, that crew of four or five, not only are they observing the aircraft there's a person at the computer that can pause all the aircraft, but they're also running out there, swapping out the batteries, getting more pucks back in. And then there's a planting module or payload that actually kicks the pucks out at the right spot because microsighting is super important. So we can get into what that is the, with the mapping and the LiDAR and the multispectral, but putting the puck in the place where it needs to go is the mm-hmm. other bit that's really, really keen. And that's what those people with shovels are doing. They're trained to put a tree not in gravel not in a river. These are very basic things like put it in a nice little like sandy patch of ground that has some mineral content that it'll grow. And so this is what you'd call precision forestry, right? That is the precision forestry element of it. And do you yeah. want to take it away there or? Yeah, yeah. sure. So like, uh, you know, Grant- call it backseat podcasting right there. <laughs> <laughs> go, go ahead. It's in the follow leads. Basically, Grant mentioned micro setting. That's another element to that question you asked about, you know, seed survival. So, you know, one of the things that we do in all sort of planting operations in our case, seeding operations is find the optimal location for that genetic material to really sit on a site and, and have the highest likelihood of survival. So I'm sure you've heard like, you know, the north side is where the moss grows on a tree. You know, there are features of different sites like slope, aspect, different terrain features like stumps, uh, downwoody detritus, other things that are laying around that are actually lending themselves to a more nursery-like environment for that genetic material, meaning it's sheltered from the extremes of a site like moisture deficit, too much sun in the middle of the summer. Uh, Maybe it's a surface area that's greater than the point, but it's below the point. Maybe it's like a low depression. So we try to find these features using all that multispectral imagery, the LIDAR, and then we use uh, right now supervised classification to annotate those on the site. And ultimately, when we get feedback on whether our seeds have germinated or not at a site, you know, ones and zeros, uh, grown or not, at what rate did they grow, you know, how many pucks were there, we, we classify all these things. And then they feed into a model that eventually will be our machine learning model for making these decisions without us. For the record, not a startup out there saying, oh, it's machine learning, like computers solve it all for us. No, we're in the very early Mm -hmm. stages where it's supervised classification or manual annotation. I'm so glad you you said that because we also have a machine learning angle to what Nori does. We don't go and tout it. It it comes down to you need to ground truth what is going on with the model. And so don't talk to me about some abstract algorithm Mm -hmm. unless you really have the practical knowledge that can inform this smarter algorithm. So that's just to say like everyone out there like make your models open so others can replicate mm-hmm. it everything will move more quickly sorry no you had right. something I you mean, wanted to add I, I mean i'm just playing into that here i mean we want that to be the case but the only way to do that from the biological side is more data and the best time to have started our business on the biological side was you know years ago what is it, the expression 20 years ago is best time to plant a tree right oh i knew you were gonna do that yeah. so glad okay <laughs> yeah. so so <laughs> best time for us to do it is is right now yesterday the day before and we've been going as fast as we can on the seed side to get our pucks produced, get other things produced, get experiments out ahead of our business. So we're not only planting via drone, but we're also planting our prototypes strategically in other locations ahead of where we'd like to expand. We're in the Southern Hemisphere, so we can take advantage of multiple growing seasons. You know, we want to be in more places. So we implore people to reach out to us so we can send out our our prototypes, you know. 
I've had friends who are either drone enthusiasts or entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. and I know the FAA is strict sometimes. I've also seen things where maybe they've loosened up or been innovating on the, the frontiers of this regulation. Mm-hmm. What's the state of it now? How does your business interact with it? How's that all going? Yeah, the FAA portion of things, the FAA was a sleepy organization that managed, I'm not sure how many, but we'll call it, a, we'll just pretend it's a thousand plus so that I can have a number to toss out there, but a thousand plus like 737s and other large aircraft coming in and out of their airspace. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, wait, hold on. There's going to be 500,000 DJI Phantoms in the airspace now. And they had to very quickly turn around and come up with something. And I would not say that anyone in the FAA would say that like, oh yeah, we nailed it. They worked really hard to figure out how to do that. I got pushed back from Congress. So from our perspective to answer the question, like we, we were, we treated the part 107, which is the like federal statue where that like they basically took everything that was related to drones and called drones under 55 pounds like and they just made a statue for it called 107 said everything related to things under 55 pounds that don't have pilots that are on the aircraft is in this statue so when they created the ability for you could get waivers to things like being able to fly multiple drones with one pilot we treated that like that there was a day that that was coming out and that's a drone swarm right as a drone swarm Mm -hmm. yes and so this was in 2016, 2017. We treated that like getting concert tickets. When that we knew the date that it would come out and the morning that they would announce what the waivers and exemptions you could get or we had pre-drafted a whole bunch of stuff. Nobody knew what the form was going to look like. And so we were all up the night before going like, are they going to release it at 12.01 a.m.? Are they going to release it at like 8 a.m. East Coast? Like what's happening? And as soon as it was live on the FAA site, there was like five text boxes and we just like nailed it, punched it in, sent it. And so that was like step one for our first precedent setting waiver. And then the next steps have been like very much like going and visiting DC and explaining what we're up to. And then once we got the DC buy-in and we had people that there's a local flight standards district office, a FISDO, and they're the people who sort of have these regional offices in various places and they will go and certify planes, aircraft maintenance operations, et cetera. So we did a live demo of our uh, multiple vehicle operations the first time. And then we did another one for our second precedent setting waiver to do a knowledge and skills test. They had never done a knowledge and skills test. So they pioneered it with us and they brought not one, but six inspectors out because the other five were there for observation training to kind of know what was happening because they were going to encounter a lot more. And so like, if you want to talk about a stressful environment, like you've got not one, but six FAA inspectors watching you and you're flying multiple aircraft simultaneously doing it on a test that like, is being pioneered between you and the FAA at the same time. So it's not like, oh, it's you just go and take the SATs. We all know how then like, you know, whatever the formulas are to get through these questions is very much more open-ended. And at the end, we pass that. So yeah, so that's kind of how we've interacted with the FAA. Our first approval took 221 days by the FAA standards. They're like, we worked really hard to move that really quickly for, for you. And from our perspective, we're like, oh, that hurts so much. But like, we really appreciate what the FAA has done and how they fast they've moved that. And they probably appreciate us because our theater of operations is in the middle of nowhere on private land or conservation easements or government access only type sites. They're literally like, it's very different than we'd like to deliver a burrito in the middle of downtown Chicago or Seattle or wherever, right? Like there's not a lot of people that can be impacted by our operations or an aircraft uh, having problems. I mean, literally there are steel gates 
that are foresters, they want to keep people out of specific areas to have them not start fires. And so when they lock gates, like they're steel gates, but they're also filled with concrete. So you can't even arc weld through them. Like you can see that sometimes they get hit by trucks and they still stay locked. So like it's a fairly like locked down in that method. And so from the FAA's perspective, they're like, they're very much a data-driven organization. They're like, go hither and develop all the data on how many flights you've done and issues you encounter. And we want to see that data. So we're a data source for them in a very safe area. And we're very, very effective at communicating what we're doing. And then we also have some rock star team members, not on this conversation, but come from Air Force Academy, come from Weapons School, which is the other top gun. Jennifer Flonikar, our VP of Ops, is very, very highly qualified. She's organized 300 C-17s at a time. So for her organizing five drones with 100 15 pound payload. They're big drones, but they're nothing like C-17s, right? They're eight feet in diameter, but they're but they're nothing like a C-17. I think everything you're saying is just really cool. I'm just kind of basking in it. I'm like, wow, these guys are one of the major forces advancing the drone industry. It seems to make a lot more sense than that Portlandia episode where they're like watching a concert and flying drones around or just like these annoying pesky little <laughs> things. Like this has a real practice. I also love the trifecta that you are both a software company and a hardware company and like a biologic company and you're you're playing in that entire space. I'm curious. We're borrowing from each one of those. Our bucks borrow from nursery practices. It's borrowing from those and then putting it together in one bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. We should probably get to wrapping this up soon, but I do have one clarifying question. How many acres are you on right now? Like each year, how many acres are you trying to plant seeds on? Yeah, well, I'll give you the the numbers as far as surveyed. We've got the planting, spraying, monitoring. So we're at a thousand plus. Amazing. This is getting to the end of it. You know, we want to give our listeners a chance to learn more, to stay in touch with you. If there are things that they can do, um, can they write a letter to their local congressman and say, hey, let these guys just have an easy pass at something? Or what can our listeners do to stay involved and stay connected to this work? Check us out at droneseed.co, droneseed.com. And we'll see what we can't do to put a subscribe link on there to get people some updates. I think those are the things for now. Can we take 90 seconds to talk about carbon emissions real quickly in the carbons market yeah. with the emissions trading system? I just system? want to clarify that, you know, we do not segregate ecosystems. Like we are working in rangelands as well. So trees are one avenue, but we are across the board. If there are seeds. Oh, yeah. You, you plant grass. We'll plant anything. Sagebrush? Anything native. Sagebrush? Yeah, sagebrush uh, is a big one. Yeah, super important for sagegrass, which mm-hmm. has become a topic of concern in the, the political conversations. But one of the things I'll note is that the emissions trading system in California, uh, $4 billion in allowances, another $200 million in offsets. It's something that we're starting to see major forestry players make very specific changes to their business models. Sierra Pacific, California's largest landowner, 1.7, 1.8 million acres. They've transitioned already about 29,000 acres to emissions trading systems and the California projects there and looking to do about 50% of their acreage into offset projects. And so what we're, we're seeing there is like, awesome. We have done a deep dive internally for ourselves, for our investors to be like, great, well, is this like a, is this a scam? Is this like, okay, great, they're just going to do business as usual, cut the trees and whatnot. No, they have to have different management practices. 
bigger spacing, more fire control, et cetera, that's good, that goes into that to be able to be valid. And then they also, anything that they're cutting, if they're cutting it, it has to go into a supply chain that's also validated in its own way. Because you can lock up that carbon in homes. And as long as you're locking up that carbon for 100 years, that's really the metric for the emissions trading system in California. So we're seeing that and going, okay, great. We really like that. That's funding uh, reforestation. We expect that to increase over time as other players like Nature Conservancy. We were just out visiting Colville tribes and uh, mm-hmm. also have experience doing reforestation projects and getting into those mission trading projects. And they're out of state, but that's something that for now, California is recognizing. So we're seeing that. And I guess the the thing that I would wrap on to respect uh, everyone's time that's listening <laughs> is uh, is very much that like if you look at like the best methods to sequester carbon, there is a physics problem that is very pertinent. You know, if you have a technology that is like it pulls carbon out of the atmosphere and makes industrial diamonds or or whatever it is, you better be making a hell of a lot of diamonds because if you're going to make a dent in, in climate change, you need to sequester millions of tons of carbon per year. And there's a surface area issue. Billions. Like, Billions, trillions, like yeah, quadrillions. Over one trillion. Yes, we will take we will take all the carbon out, right? So like if you have a surface area issue in the sense that any other, if you have millions of tons of any other thing, what would that look like across the state of Texas if phosphorus, of coal or something like that? Millions of tons would be a lot of surface area. So you have two options. You either have oceans or forests. And the idea of dumping a bunch of iron into oceans, man, law of unintended consequences, uh, like really, I'm very much opposed to that. I think that will just completely cause all these problems that we just do not even understand yet. Whereas we know right now forests like works, like people will sit in trees to protect forests, very publicly acceptable. The other option is you, you have like scaled up air scrubbers, but you have a flow rate problem. You have to pump you have to pump air through these like submarine air scrubbers at such a rate. And you still have to have that surface area. Like what do you do with the carbon on those filters? Like, where does that go? Like, how does that pull out millions of tons of carbon? And so uh, you look at where we're at on a price per acre of sequestered carbon. And if you are pulling out at some of our price points, you're at $13 per acre of uh, sequestered carbon. And the the math there is you take the dollars per acre that uh, we charge to put trees out there. And then you take the um, 15 to 20 tons of carbon per managed acre of forest. And then you look at it and you're like, great, where are we at? And well, for the first year, you're at like 13 to $20 per ton, which $14 is the price floor on the California trading system right now. So like we're already below the price floor. So, and that's just for the first year, the projects continue to accrue credits over the lifetime of the project. And so that can be very much like a source of cash flow for these industries. And yes, of course, if they do burn, there's an insurance pool that everybody pays into. So like we really love what you're up to with making a system that has more verification, that can trade more emissions because we really see like a ton of additional funding for reforestation projects because on a surface area physics basis, they're the most efficient. And on a cash basis, cost basis, they're the most efficient because nature already did the R&D for those systems. Mic drop. Um, <laughs> I totally agree. And we 
definitely should do a whole other podcast that gets into how, how this can work and also how we can use drone data more efficiently to just <laughs> dramatically cut out verification costs because it's all right there. You might just, not know this, but this guy worked in direct air capture for a long time too. So you just laid so many things right in front of him. I, I won't even respond to that. Yeah, we're gonna, so I, I, juicy steaks. <laughs> yeah. Ross is like saying, wrap it up, Christoph, because I need to go do my next thing. So I will do that. But thank you for listening. If you like the show, please subscribe. This is the first time you're listening. You can follow Nori on Twitter at Nori. You can check us out at nori.com. Check out Drone Seed. That's droneseed.co or com. And we'll see you next time. Yeah. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, guys. Thank you for making time.